1 Corinthians 13, getting at verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not speak its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into an account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child, when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three. The greatest of these is love. We're coming to the end of our exposition of uh, 1 Corinthians 13, and we have noted that the Apostle Paul has clearly indicated that as important as the spiritual gifts are, that love is vastly more important. Why? Because God is love. It's one of his great perfections. The greatest goal of any Christian, as the Scripture tells us, is to be like God. We are commanded to love one another as Jesus has loved us, Jesus said in John 13. Over the past several weeks, we've looked at the multiple faces of love and how that would be and how love is the superior thing. Again, I want to stress to you that while our sanctification in this world can never be perfect, what is the goal that's set before us? The goal set before us is, as Jesus said in Matthew 5:48, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Though we are tainted with sin in this world and the remaining effects, as the Apostle says, nonetheless, the goal is there. And he has given us the faces of love here. And he's told us to imitate the Lord Jesus in this respect. We must strive after holiness with every fiber of our being, with heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what we must do. And we can be more loving, we can be more sanctified, and this is what we should want. We don't want just mere formalism in our lives. We don't want uh, the idea of coming to Sunday school or to uh, worship service as important as that is, uh, and these are good things to do, but it's vain religion if in our hearts nothing changes. I mean, we're not, we are, we come to worship with the people of God. We come to hear the word of God from preaching so that we might be more holy, that we may understand the will of God, that we might be a sanctified people. 
That is the goal. That needs to be the goal of all our lives here. And so in this regard, the text for our day is verses 8 through verse 13. And we need to, when we looked at this portion, we need to learn how better to apply that scripture to our lives. Now, in this section we're going to be dealing with today, there are four differing views of Bible scholars on this passage. And you know, in one sense, when, when, when you read on this, when as a preacher and you prepare on this, and you have Bible scholars who, who delve into the Scriptures, why are there four different views? I mean, the Scripture talks about a truth. It doesn't have multiple truths. It's a, a truth. And these are sincere people who are delving into the Scriptures, and yet, in a sincere attempt, come up with four different views. Now, they're not all that far apart in one sense. However, the challenge is, and it's discouraging in one sense, because you ask yourself, well, who's right? I mean, there seems to be some merit to all of these points. And you wonder, why didn't God just make it so simple that it's just obvious? No, I've asked myself that multiple times. It could be in one sense, because if it were that stand out, that obvious, would there be any necessity of being diligent to go to the Word of God, as Second Timothy says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, handling accurately the Word of Truth? There is a lot there in Scripture. It may be to a large extent that the Lord forces us to get into the Scriptures. And the more you get into the Scriptures to discern its truth, guess what? You learn something. And you learn it better in many ways because you're struggling with it. God's not deficient. God is the one who's inspired his, his apostles and prophets to write the Scripture. God knew what he was doing. So, in this regard, I don't want to go into all the fine details of the four different views. I'm just going to set them forth to you, and I'm going to set forth what I believe is the most faithful one that I think is the greatest um, argument in favor of what the context is. In this section, here are some of the questions that we've got to address. What is meant by prophecy? tongues, and knowledge. Are all these gifts still continuing, or are they done away with? When, If they're done away with, when do they cease? And really the most important question in this section, the one that's mostly debated as to what Bible scholars are trying to understand what is meant, is what is meant by the perfect? Because it says when the perfect comes, all the others will see. So what is this perfect? And there's difference of opinion on that. Now let me just state for you very briefly the four views. One is that the perfect refers to the completed canon or the entirety of Scripture. 
That's one view. Second view. <clears throat> now, by the way, let me mention this. When we talk about canon, when we use the word canon, that is a word that simply means the rule of faith and practice. That's what the word canon means. So we talk about the canon of Scripture, which is the all 66 books of the Bible. We're talking about the rule of faith and practice that God has given to us by inspiration. And so we understand by this, when we talk about the canon of scriptures, that it is that the Bible is the only word of God, and it is the completed word of God. Only the word of God and the completed word of God. That's one view. Second view thinks of the perfect as to the spiritual maturity of the church. That's another view. A third view. The perfect refers to Christ and his second coming with the miraculous gift ceasing uh, before that coming of Christ. At some point, they ceased, and the usual view that they ceased during the apostolic era. And then the fourth view is that the perfect refers to Christ and his second coming with the miraculous gift still continuing up until the day that Jesus Christ comes. Now, there's a challenge. <clears throat> you know, as difficult as it is, and I'm going to tell you something as a preacher, and <clears throat> I take very seriously the preaching of the Word of God. I understand my limitations as a human being. I understand that I have to be faithful. I have to be diligent. I must approach the Word of God with great sobriety because... I'm dealing with the very Word of God. And the last thing I want to tell you is something that's not true. <laughs> but I do acknowledge fallibility in this sense. But really, that's the challenge of every preacher of the gospel, that we need to be sensitive of. Though you have these views, and I have to remind myself, and many times when I'm preaching or preparing for a message, I'm thinking this. And there are some difficult passages to deal with. There is a truth. There is a truth. There is one truth here. I need to find it. I need to pray for it. I need to do as much studying and learn how God has dealt with other men and illumined their minds. See, I, I uh, ministered, first of all, in the first pastor in an area of the country where a prevalent attitude was this, that any consulting of anything beyond the Bible was seen as suspect. And that it was somehow unholy to read a commentary. And I thought about that many times, and I've always wondered, and those that espouse that, I've always thought that's rather an arrogant attitude to think that I'm the only one that maybe will ever understand truth. And that does, does that mean that down through the ages of church history that no one else will have been privileged to understand something that I can't glean and appreciate how God's led other men? And I'd always wanted to say, well, if you have that view, why do you listen to that preacher? Because you're listening to his understanding of the Word of God, too. It's a challenge. It really is a challenge 
to under, try to understand what this word means. Now, you think, is it really that important to, to understand what this truth here is? I'm telling you, it is more important than you think. It really is. For example, in regard to the fourth view, that the perfect refers to the Christ that is coming and these miraculous gifts continue all the way up to the second coming, meaning there are still the miraculous gifts being practiced. Now, that's a prominent view held among many charismatics today. I will say this to you, that much of Reformed theology and some forms of non-Reformed theology are actually in agreement on this passage. And amazingly, Reformed theology and Dallas Seminary, known for its dispensational premillennialism, to a large degree, are in agreement on this passage. I think that's all, but they are. <clears throat> Namely, that the perfect refers to the completed canon, and that the miraculous gifts ended at the end of the apostolic era. Now, as appealing as it may be, the idea to think of the perfect as the, the return of Christ, there are various reasons why that is not, I believe, the best understanding of, of this passage, and not what Paul is getting at here. Though it has some appealing aspects. For example, look at verse uh, chapter 13, look at verse 10 when it says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. <clears throat> Now, some have looked at this and understood this to mean that at the rapture of the church, that the perfect knowledge, that we will then have perfect knowledge when Christ comes. And sometimes people say in this regard, well, what matters, after all, is that you get something out of the Word of God. That that ultimately is what matters. Now, let me, let me talk about that for a moment. Let's have a Bible study. And there are several ways you can go about there in a Bible study asking questions. But what would it be like if one leading the Bible study were to go around and say, okay, George, what does this mean? Well, this is what the passage means to me. And he gives an application of it. Well, that's, that's really good, George. Helen, what, what does it mean to you? And Helen comes up with a, some idea he says, wow, it's not what George says, but it says, this really is meaningful to me. Well, that's great. You come over here to Harry. Harry, what does this mean to me? Or to you? And he says, well, this is what it means to me. It's different from all the others. Completely different, but there was something meaningful about it. I, in my early days as a Christian, I've participated in those kinds of Bible studies. And, but since then, I've wondered about those studies. <clears throat> and I hate to tell... <clears throat> this, but you know that idea that it doesn't matter what the truth is as long as it is truthful to you and you get something out of it? You know what that's called? It's called neo-orthodoxy. It's called Bartonism. And it was popularized. It's been around a while, but it was popularized 
in the early part of the 20th century by a German theologian by the name of Karl Barth, B-A-R-T-H. And here's what Karl Barth said. In terms of the inspiration of Scripture, that these very words are not inspired. But that when you read these words and they become meaningful to you, then he says, then it becomes the word of God for you. That's what Bart taught. I can remember one time <clears throat> visiting some relatives and we had uh, attended a church on the Christmas Eve service. And during that, and it was it was uh, the group where, you know, I wondered uh, about where we were. And I remember they spoke this and said this. It says, listen for the word of God. That's all they said. I turned to my wife and I said, this is going to be a long night. And you know what? In, in presbytery exams, <clears throat> it used to be that if you're examining a man for about the scriptures, and you ask him, what is his opinion of the Bible? And if he says, well, the Bible, we listen for the word of God, it's different. That is completely different than saying, listen to the word of God. So what they're meaning is, listen for the word of God, and you engage in that however way you want to engage in it. Then that's the word of God. By the way, does it make a difference whether you believe the very words of Scripture to be the Word of God? Absolutely it makes a difference. It makes a big difference in your sanctification. It really, truly does. Now, it is vital, absolutely vital for us that we believe the Bible to be the verbal inspiration Word of God. And therefore, in this regard, what I told you about Barkingism, it decimated the visible church to, in the early to mid-20th century. Did unbelievable damage. And led the church into all sorts of beliefs. And explains, and you might think, how in the world did the church ever get to the point, for example, that we hear today, someone say, well, I'm a homosexual Christian. Really? Where do you get that in the Bible? I thought the Bible said in 1 Corinthians 6 that homosexuals will not enter the kingdom of God. Oh, but that's your interpretation. You see, if the Bible is whatever you want it to be, you can make it up anything, and that's what people do today. They make it whatever they want to be. But what does the words actually mean? Can I just embrace anything that I want to believe? No. If there is, brethren, if there is no absolute truth that we are striving to understand, and if it's a shade of gray somehow, then, then if it's a shade of gray, whatever is gray that you like is what is okay. And whatever gray you like is okay. Told you this story before, but years ago in Atlanta, working on a paint job, and a lady was I was painting for. She found out I was a preacher. I've told this before, but it's so relevant. And I was down in her basement sitting, painting her shutters, 
and we were talking about the Bible, and I think at the time, I forget when it was, I might have been in my late 30s, maybe 40 at best. She was probably in her 60s, maybe early 70s. So I was the young whippersnapper, all right? As we were talking about the Bible, she made this comment to me. She says, John, you're going to learn as you get older that truth is not black and white, but truth is a shade of gray. And I remember I was painting along, and I was thinking about what she said, and I said, this song, so I just got one question. What do you think Jesus meant? When he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Do you think that was a shade of gray or black and white? John, no one has ever asked me that kind of question. And I was thinking to myself, they maybe have it, but I was thinking to myself, I'm waiting for the answer. Is it a shade of gray, or is Jesus black and white there? It makes a difference. It makes a difference how, when we're, we're looking at this, or these gifts, these miraculous gifts, and I don't want to re-preach a message. When I went through Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, we dealt with these miraculous gifts. But it does make a difference if you believe that these gifts are still going on. I may have mentioned this before. I've had relatives who, my relative, her, her father died at her, uh, when she was early age, and her mother remained a widow for maybe 20, 25 years, and later in life remarried. And, and then in this remarriage, uh, my relative's uh, mother, she will die. And they're going to have the funeral service. Well, the the children were of a theological persuasion. And someone at the church had a word of knowledge that her mother was going to rise from the dead at the funeral service. And guess what? Her husband, the family, the children did not wonder about the spirituality of the husband. Now, he professed Christ, but he wasn't of that persuasion. You know what the children did? They did not allow the husband to attend his own wife's funeral. My father at the time, who was many a skeptic at the time, said <clears throat> they were friends. He was, my parents were friends with the, the mom who had died. They wanted to attend the funeral, my, but... Family member says, you're not allowed to go. Not even the husband's allowed to go. My dad said, well, can I stand up on a hill? Because I've never seen anybody rise from the dead before. Needless to say, nobody was raised from the dead that day. I read on the Internet, does it make a difference? Now imagine not being a husband, not being able to go to your own wife's funeral because of a theological view about the ongoing nature of these gifts, which they believed that it was going to happen. Well, no one was raised from the dead that day. Did you read on the Internet not too long ago of the preacher up in West Virginia who announced it was going to be a snake handling service? And during the snake handling service, guess what? He got bit and died. 
And in the article mentioned, it says maybe he should have learned from the past, which he didn't. His father was a preacher of the same persuasion and 25 years earlier had a snake handling service and was bitten and died in the service too. It makes a difference. Are, are these gifts still going on? These miraculous gifts? It makes a difference in how you live your life. It really does. Well, you see, this section is really more practical than we might think. Now, let's understand, first of all, as we're going through this, what is Paul getting at here? Well, beginning in 1 Corinthians 12, he discusses the diversity of these spiritual gifts. Chapter 13, he's stressing the importance of love in the exercise of these gifts. And we're going to see in chapter 14, he's going to talk about the preeminence of prophecy over tongues and then how we should conduct ourselves in the public worship of God. That's kind of a preview of chapter 14 when we get to it. In this chapter 13 that we've looked at, He's talked about the necessity of love in verses 1 through 3. In verses 4 through 7, that I've dealt with in the last several weeks, we've talked about the nature and the character of love. What does love look like? And now in verses 8 through 13, the apostle is going to say, love is so superior that when tongues and prophecy and knowledge are done away with, guess what remains? Love will remain. It's the only thing that's permanent. And so what we see here, in this regard, we need to understand, first of all, that with regard to verse 8, these gifts of prophecy and tongues and knowledge, as I mentioned when I preached in other sections in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, these were miraculous gifts. And they were gifts that were given to men, as we see in the scripture, the apostles and prophets. For what purpose? To convey to us how those who they were speaking to needed to listen to them because they were the conveyors of the word of God. To authenticate their message. And Paul will essentially say to the Corinthians... And probably the, the problem, the reason why Paul is dealing with this section and the way he's addressing it, is that the apparently the Corinthians were elevating these gifts to a place where they thought of themselves, if they possessed these gifts, of being more mature than other people. And Paul had to correct that erroneous thought. He says what's important is not to think highly of yourself because of these gifts but you need to show love. That's greater. That's what's going to remain, not these gifts. So Paul will essentially say to the Corinthians, you got it all wrong here. Don't elevate the gifts. Don't elevate these miraculous gifts. They're going to be done away with. And there's a reason they're going to be done away with. The perfect is coming, and when the perfect comes, it will terminate those things. Now, let's look briefly. What was the, the reason for these miraculous gifts anyway? I just want to have us address a couple passages 
Turn to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Now remember when Peter did his healing of the lame man, recorded in Acts 3. It create, when this man lame from birth, when Peter says, I don't have money to give to you, but what I, I will give you what I do have in the name of Jesus, rise. And when that man who was lame from birth leaped up, what did, it, what did the scripture say it created? Amazement in the crowd. They knew this man from that he had been a beggar and he was lame from birth. It created awe, to say the least. And then Peter says, now don't look to me as if I've done something. I have done this in the name of Jesus. By the way, this Jesus whom you crucified not long ago, repent of your sins and turn to him. So it was intended to inspire, to, to cause people to look in amazement and to listen to this preacher. Turn with me over to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. For this reason we, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So these, these signs and wonders and miracles were designed to authenticate the message of the apostles and prophets. And as Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 says, uh, states to us that the church's foundation was laid upon the work of the apostles and prophets, of which upon that foundation is being built a holy temple unto the Lord. But the work of the apostles and the prophets and the, the miracles that were accompanying them, the prophecy, the tongue speaking, did that create a stir in, in, in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost? You better believe it did. Because people thought, well, these guys are drunk. They're out of their minds. Everybody began to hear, they heard the, uh, the speaking of these apostles. Uh, Disciples in their own dialect when there were multiple dialects there. It was amazing. It was supernatural. How do you account for this? And so, in this regard, this ministry of the apostles and prophets, they used these miraculous gifts to get people to listen to them because, guess what? Revelation was still continuing. The word of the canon had not yet been completed. It's still going on. And as vital as the work of the apostles and prophets was, what does the Paul say? Turn back to 1 Corinthians 13. What does he say? It was but partial. This word of knowledge, this prophecy, these tongues, he says, for, verse 9, 
For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. Now, as vital as the work of the apostles and prophets were, it was still a partial reality. It was still thinking as a child, acting like a child. It was still looking to a mirror dimly. The gifts of prophecy, of tongues, of knowledge, they were miraculous, but they were temporary. And they would do what? They would give way to the fuller revelation of God, which is that which is perfect. It would give away to the completed canon. And as verse 8 tells us, love never fails. However, prophecy tongues and knowledge will be done away with. Now, when you think about knowledge being done away with, well, it can't mean all knowledge because as Christians we grow in knowledge. It can't be an ordinary knowledge. It's interesting that in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, and I don't need to go into all the finer, finer details. And in preparation for this message, you know, the best thing that I found was not by a Reformed theologian. It was by a man of another persuasion, but whose exegesis of this was one of the most scholarly treatments I'd ever read, and I thought captured the essence of what this scripture says. But what he mentions is the same thing what other Reformed theologians have said. It's just interesting that the finest article that I've read came from a source you might not have otherwise thought. Prophecy, knowledge, and tongues did what? They dealt with direct revelation from God. That's what they dealt with. In 1 Corinthians 13, true, 2, prophecy is, if you notice, is linked with knowing divine mysteries. And in, when we get to 1 Corinthians 14, 29-31, it's going to be dealing with re- receiving a revelation. So these things, these gifts have to do with receiving the inspired word of God, but in partial form. So the question of verse 8 is, these gifts are going to cease, but when are they going to cease? When are they going to cease? Now, verse 9 tells us we prophesy in part. This means that in some way, Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge were but partial revelations of God, not the entirety. And we should see then that the meaning of in part is dependent, in one sense, about what we mean by the perfect. So we can say this, whatever, because these things are being contrasted. You notice the contrast in verse 10? But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. There's your contrast. The partial will be done away with, the partial will be done away with when the perfect comes. Whenever that is, it it will deal away with the partial. Well, he's already told us that the partial is tongues, prophecy, and knowledge, a word of knowledge, like in in 1 Corinthians 12. 
a word of knowledge that was inspired, infallible, very related very much to prophecy. So at some point, these miraculous things that are said to be partial will be done away with when the perfect comes. So the partial, in some way, obviously by the word partial, is incomplete. If I give you a partial part of the pie today, if anybody bought a pie, I don't know. You have not got the whole pie. You have just got a part of the pie. And these gifts are just a part of the pie. They're not the full thing. But there is something that is fuller, the whole thing. So, we have seen that the partial refers to these miraculous gifts. Now, what do these gifts have in common? They all, as I said, involve some kind of direct revelation from God. Therefore, the revelation communicated by these gifts were piecemeal. They were partial. They weren't complete. It's not the whole thing that God wants to tell us. What it does say is true, but it's not telling us everything. But when the perfect comes, it will tell us everything that we need to know. So therefore, if knowledge, tongues, and prophecy are piecemeal revelations from God, then what is the perfect? It's the full revelation of God is what it is. And the perfect is this. Here is the perfect. You have it. You've got it. This is the perfect. It has come. This is the revelation of God in its entirety. Everything that God wants us to know. Right here. It's not partial anymore. During the times of the apostles and prophets, uh, large sections of this scripture had not yet been communicated. It was in the process of being communicated. But when all the books were put together, you got everything that you need. When did the partial cease? Whenever the perfect came. And if we say that the perfect is the completed canon, those gifts ended when they served their purpose. When all of the epistles had been written and the church recognized it as Though the church does not determine the Word of God, they just recognize it as the Word of God. See, that's a big difference. Some people say, well, the the church and and the, the Catholic church determined the canon. They didn't determine the canon. No, Christians recognized what the Word of God was. Just like the Thessalonians, when they heard Paul's preaching, they recognized Paul's preaching as the very Word of God. He wasn't the first preacher ever to go through Thessalonica, by the way. He wasn't the first. There were many others. But when Paul preached, they knew it in their hearts. Why? Because the Holy Spirit testified in their hearts. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, they knew it was the Word of God. I don't know when God worked in your heart. You may have always been growing up in a Christian family. Praise God. Some of us did not have that privilege. 
And there was a part when I heard as an agnostic at one point, when I heard the word of God uh, proclaimed to me in this little group in this off campus in this apartment in Salt Lake City, I knew that I had an encounter with God. And I knew that the, the scripture that was proclaimed, that somehow that was true. Now, how did I know that? I knew nothing of the Bible. It was the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit. And so the people of God, they know the Bible. They know what the Word of God, when they hear it, that it is the very Word of God they're dealing with. So in this sense, we see here that in this regard, what are some of the analogies that Paul uses here to prove his point? And you, always, you may have wondered, so why are these analogies of a child and of a mirror? What's that all about? Well, here's what it's all about. The purpose of these analogies is to reinforce and to illustrate the point about the cessation of these miraculous gifts of tongues, prophecy, and knowledge. It is a common analogy of uh, the activities of a child compared to an adult. That's what Paul is doing. He's comparing how a child thinks and how an adult thinks. So let's think about the mental capabilities of a child and the mental capabilities of an adult. Would you not agree that the uh, mental capabilities of a child are limited with respect to an adult? I would hope so. Uh, the vocabulary of an adult far superior to that of a child. Uh, the adult has an ability to think on a level that a child does, and there is a reason you don't teach your five-year-old child calculus. They're not ready for it. They can't understand it yet. Oh, but there's an Einstein out there that might know it. Did you know Einstein flunked math? For real. Because he probably wasn't motivated. That's one thing. But that's, that's a true thing. He did flunk math. <clears throat> but you don't... You, 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 a child, has a certain capacity, has a certain mental capacity that does grow and mature as they move into adulthood. So Paul is saying simply here, he says with regard to these, uh, these miraculous gifts, they're like thinking as a child, <laughs> acting like a child. Yeah, they were true, but they're not mature yet. The perfect hasn't come yet. But it will give way to the perfect. You will learn to think. And you will be able to see it more fully when the perfect comes. Let's consider the analogy here. He talks about, notice in verse 12, he talks about a mirror. We now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just I've been fully known. Now the, the, the understanding of this passage here of seeing dimly in a mirror really is, again, 
is a contrast between seeing dimly in a mirror, as in a mirror, and seeing face to face. There's the difference. Seeing in a mirror, a reflection, and then being able to see it face to face. The idea meaning that if you see it face to face, it's more clear. Even as, by the way, did you know that Corinth was one of the leading places in the ancient world for their mirror making? They made some of the finest mirrors of the ancient world. So you see, Paul, what he's doing is taking some of the common imagery of the time in, in Corinth to, to demonstrate the truth. But as great as that mirror may be, it still doesn't give an image as if it were face to face. Now again, why is he giving analogies? He's relating it back to these miraculous gifts. They're partial. They're partial. It's like seeing in a mirror. I do see, but I don't see as clear as when, when the perfect comes. Now, this is where the view that some would say, well, this really seems to be speaking of being in the presence of Jesus. And we'll, we'll be able to see him uh, face to face. And that's what it's referring to. Now, let me mention something to you. When we go to heaven, we will see Jesus face to face. That is true. We will know more than we know now. However, is that what Paul's saying? Is that what Paul's saying is the point here? don't think that's what he's saying. And we're going to demonstrate why. First, let's understand how the Bible... Would it not be important to see how the Bible uses this terminology face-to-face? And keep in mind that this face-to-face is an antithesis. It's the opposite of that which is seen dimly in a mirror. There's the, there's the contrast. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> this imagery of face-to-face is an Old Testament imagery. And I want us to take a look at some of these passages to, to demonstrate that to you. But let me, before we take a look at these passages, let me just mention this to you. This metaphor, and a metaphor is simply an analogy to give an illustration to try to bring out the truth in a figurative way. This metaphor of face-to-face means this, that when the perfect comes, the believers will fully see clearly and distinctly in comparison to what they knew only partially before. Meaning, through prophecy, tongues, and a word of knowledge, they saw dimly. But when the full revelation comes, they will see more clear. Turn with me to Exodus 33, verses Verse 11. Exodus 33, verse 11. And we're looking at this idea of face to face. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. Now, one might be inclined to think that 
that Moses personally saw the face of God. But we're going to see here in a moment that is not what the text says. Turn with me to verse 18 through 20 of the same chapter and you'll see. Then Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. For no man can see me and live. But it said earlier that he saw that God spoke face to face with Moses. But then it says, I can't show you my face or you'll die. Because I'm so glorious as the creature, you can't handle it. You can't handle my glory face to face, as it were. But I did speak to him face to face. But notice when he says in verse 11 back here, he says, God spoke to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Why does a man speak to his friend? How do you speak to your friends? Openly and directly, right? That's how you speak to your friends. So when it says that God spoke, to Moses face to face, he was open and direct with Moses about what he wanted. Turn with me over to Numbers chapter 12. Look at verses 6 through 8. He said, <clears throat> now this is the context. In this context here, of Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron, and Aaron, brother and sister to Moses, came and spoke against Moses because he married a Cushite woman. Many believe that this was a Ethiopian, this was a black woman. And they were upset that he married this woman. You know what God had to say about this? Here's what God said. Because they murmured against Moses. Miriam and Aaron. And God says, I want the three of you to come out to the tent of meeting because God says, I want to talk to all three of you. That's what God says. I'm going to talk to all three of you. And here's what God said, beginning at verse 6. And he said, Hear now my words. Is there a prophet among you? I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. By, by the way, I need to preface this because this is important. Look at verse 2. Here's what Miriam and Aaron were saying to Moses. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? In other words, hey, we've got something to say to you, Moses, as, as our brother. We think you did wrong in this. And so what they were doing, they were challenging Moses' relationship as a prophet with God. And God, that's when God says, I want all three of you to come out here because I've got something to say to you. And this is what God's going to say. Now, understand that they had challenged Moses as being the only prophet among them. 
Hear now my words, verse 6. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. No, not so with my servant Moses. He's a faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant and against Moses? And it's, it's, a, it's a frightful thing, God says. You know, I don't speak to Moses like other prophets. I speak to other prophets in dreams and visions. But with Moses, he's different. I speak to him mouth to mouth. He's different. Why weren't you afraid when you challenged Moses' uh, ability as a prophet? And then it's in verse 9, The anger of the Lord burned against them. And it says, When they left the tent, Miriam was leprous, white as snow. And Aaron begs Moses, Oh, Lord, verse 11, I beg you, do not account this sin to us, which we have acted foolishly. They understood now it was a foolish thing to challenge Moses' ability as a prophet. And it says, Do not let her be like one of the dead, whose flesh is half eaten away. And Moses cried out to the Lord, Oh, God, heal her, I pray. I always thought this. Now, the meaning of this, don't ask me after the message what this means, because I'm not sure. <laughs> But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Apparently, if a foolish daughter did something, a father could spit in her face to prove that this was a shameful daughter. And what God is saying here, now, an earthly father who deals with a foolish daughter, he'll spit in her face and she'll be unclean for seven days. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to be merciful to you. Miriam will remain leprous for seven days, and then I'll heal her. And he did. And he healed Miriam. The thing about it here is that when it talks about God speaking with Moses mouth to mouth or face to face, he says, I'm speaking to one openly, direct, like none others. And it's important to understand the other prophets Though they were true prophets, they learned it by dreams and visions that we know in the Old Testament. He says, but Moses was different. Moses was different. He had a special relationship with God. But the whole point here is that God was giving Moses direct revelation in a full way, unlike the others. So... In other words, in our text, in 1 Corinthians 13, the word partial revelation would refer to dreams, visions, miraculous gifts in the New Testament. They were limited and restricted in sight. But the complete revelation of God would come to them when he gave them the whole canon. When the perfect comes then they will see clearly, not like in a mirror, dimly. They'll see clearly the will of God. So to see something face to face 
And I turn back to 1 Corinthians 13. I want you to to understand this. When he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, I'll see. He's still talking about the revelation of God in its completed form. So to see something face to face is to perceive the revelation of God's will for the church clearly and completely. And when he says, I now know in part, but then I shall be fully known as I've been known by God fully, is not talking about what we will know about Jesus at the second coming. By the way, even in heaven, we are going to know things more than we know now. So when he says, I will know, when Paul says, I shall know fully just as I have been fully known, he can't be talking that he knows the same as God. Because even in heaven, we are still the creature. We are still the creature. And though we're going to be vastly beyond what we are now, we are still the creature. Because if we knew fully as God knows, guess what? We'd be God, wouldn't we? But the creature will never be God. You must The, the creature-creator distinction is even true in the glories of heaven. That's going to be a wondrous thing, but I still will not know what God ultimately knows. So what he's talking about here, he's talking about this perfect, which is this complete revelation. Now just think about it. How deficient, all right, I'm going to get us here, this is the New Testament. How deficient would we be, though this is the bulk, this is the Old Testament, this is the New Testament, how deficient would we be if we didn't have this part called the New Testament? I'm telling you, we'd be vastly hampered. And the reason we would be vastly hampered is this. Jesus Christ, yes, is in all the books of the Bible. Jesus says, I'm in all the books of the Bible. And yes, the gospel was preached to Abraham. But where do we find that truth out? Galatians 3, 8, which, by the way, is the New Testament. We find that truth out. The covenant of grace was in the Old Testament, administered in the Old Testament. And as our Westminster Confession of Faith says... How was that covenant administered in the Old Testament? Promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb were all types and ordinances, all for signifying Jesus to come. To come. Now, the Christ, Jesus Christ is said in the New Testament to be what? The substance to the shadows. The Old Testament was a shadow, but Jesus is the substance. Where do we learn that? The New Testament. Without that, we would not have a clear understanding of the Word of God, now would we? We would not have a clear understanding of the relationship of how Jesus is the fulfillment of those sacrificial uh, things done in the Old Testament. We wouldn't know that. 
Take out the New Testament. Let's put it this way. You would still be thinking, you and me would still be thinking like a child and acting like a child without the New Testament. We would still see Christ, but we would see him only dimly. And that's how the saints of the Old Testament saw him. They saw him, but they saw him not in the way that that believers in the New Testament see him. See, we see him more perfectly. We see him better. Because we have all the Word of God now. That's why we see Him better. You know, the, the Confession of Faith says that the New Testament presents the Gospel in more fullness, evidences, and spiritual power. It's more simple than the Old Testament, but it's more powerful. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 3. And you'll see. St. Corinthians 3, beginning at verse 7. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation is glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case had no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and and are not as Moses who used to put a veil over his face, that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty." But we all with unveiled face behold as in what? As in a mirror the glory of the Lord as being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord is the Spirit. With an unveiled face we behold the glory of God in the New Testament. Unlike the saints of the Old Testament. Far greater knowledge, far greater abilities than the saints. You and I have more ability to be holy than any of the saints of the Old Testament. And I'm talking about David, Solomon, all the greats. The day of Pentecost is still one of the greatest events in all of human history. Because on that day, the Spirit came with power unlike anything else in the history of the world. That all Christians now have this power source that none had that power. Yes, they had a certain power, but the Spirit came and went. But now we have His abiding presence that those of the Old Testament did not have of the same magnitude. And that's why it says... We are being transformed. So, brethren, when Paul's talking about when this perfect comes, the parcel is going to be done away with. 
these, these gifts, as great as they were, as miraculous as they were, they're not of the same magnitude as this book in its completed form. You have that which is perfect. And with this book and the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I are transformed into the image of Christ. Transformed into the image of Christ. Take a look at, turn to Romans 12. Look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, and you'll see. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, and that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. By the way, the word perfect there is the same word, teleos, which is used in our passage in 1 Corinthians 13. With the Word of God, you and I have all that we need. We no longer see partially. We no longer see dimly. We see clearly. But now, how do you see clearly? This is where we need to listen carefully. Here's how you see clearly. You've got to be. How do you renew your mind, did Paul say in Scripture? you got to be in the Word, right? You can't just... It just doesn't happen by osmosis. You've got to be in the Word of God. And so you have everything now at your disposal to be transformed. The perfect has come. It has come. You know, I should mention to you our larger catechism question number five. What do the Scriptures principally teach? Here's the answer. The Scriptures, meaning the Old and New Testament, teach man what he is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. That's what the Scriptures are intended for. Question six says, what do the Scriptures make known of God? Answer, the Scriptures make known of God what is, what God is, the persons in the Godhood, his decrees and the execution of his decrees. Brethren, during the apostolic era, they had but a partial understanding of these great truths. But with the completion of the New Testament, and we have it all, now you have the full orbed word of God. That tells us everything you, you and I need to know about God. I like this, what Calvin says. Calvin says, when God stops speaking, we need to stop asking. He has spoken to us in his word. He has told us what he wants us to know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us. Through the scriptures, he has illumined us everything we need to know to be holy. So, in this regard, when he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, When the perfect comes, then I shall know just fully as I have known. Paul is saying that 
when this revelation is complete, we will have all that we need. You don't need anything else. You don't need anything else. This is why, when I said it's important, where you come down on this thing about are these, these gifts, miraculous gifts, continuing, why do we need them? Why do we need them? We don't. You don't need these miraculous gifts anymore. They were given to authenticate the apostles. We got the word of the apostles now. There's no more need of a word of knowledge. We have everything we have. You, you, I hope you understand how important that is. The fact you've got everything you need now that the perfect has come. So in this regard, you know, he says in here, as we conclude, look here at 1 Corinthians 13, 13. He says, but now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. You know that the only one that will remain in eternity is love. Not faith. And not hope. You know why it's not faith? What is faith? But a trusting in the promises of God. What is hope? But a, an expectation of an inheritance that awaits us. But when we're in heaven, do we need faith? No. When we're in heaven, do we need to hope anymore? No. It says, we, in this world, we walk in this body. St. Corinthians 5, 7 says... We walk by faith, not by sight. But guess what? In heaven, you're going to see. You don't need faith anymore. You got it. It's the reality, finally. But you know what? You will never get over the love of God. And it's captured in that great hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. You will be enthralled in the love of God. It will be the love of God while you're there. Because you and I were wretches. We don't, we don't deserve to be there, do we? We deserve to be in hell. That's where we deserve. And so for 10,000 years, however it is, the fact of the unconditional love of God for His elect, that He would have mercy upon me, a sinner. And that's probably, I think, one of the greatest glories of heaven that we'll realize I don't deserve this. I really don't. And so, this is why he says, when faith disappears and hope is realized, there is still the love of God that will be poured out upon us throughout eternity. Hallelujah. You have all that you need. The perfect has come. Study it. Love it. Be transformed. Let us pray.